Well, teen missions, guys, I just want to come behind that and agree with Rick. We will continue to pray for you, and aren't you just, isn't God good? You get to go. You get to go this year, and that's, that's a change from last year. So, so glad. And um, when, when one of you, uh, Brandon, when will you guys be back? When will we see you again? All right, all right, so we'll see you August 13. It's awesome. So, and I'll say this too, Trinity will miss you, and we will. We will pray for you, we will miss you guys. God bless you. Songs are written about it. Movies make billions of dollars off of it. Jewelry symbolizes it. Hallmark is what Hallmark is because of it. People say they fell into it, and sometimes they later say they no longer feel it. The Bible has an entire book written about it. Corinthians says it's the greatest of these and that it never fails. Jesus summed up all the law and prophets by it. John tells us God is it. And now in our text, we are told that we are taught by God himself it. If you are a believer, you are literally living in the classroom of God. And the course is love 101. Well, let's pray. God, thank you we're in that classroom. Lord, for all the believers who are in the room this morning, Lord, we can say thank you we're in that classroom. You have taught us love. You are teaching us love. Lord, we have no better teacher than none other than the Lord God himself. Lord, I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would teach us love yet again. And by doing so, Lord, I pray that you would help your church, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to love others more and more. God, would you come? Would you be with us? Would you bless these next moments with your presence? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our big idea. Having been taught and having been loved by God, we are now rightly postured and motivated to be urged to love more and more. We'll dive right in. Point one, when you have been loved by God, love. Let's read again verse nine and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God. I mean, let's think of or consider Paul's argument. You don't need me to write you about this. Why? Oh, because God is your teacher. Because you have been taught by God. What, what can I, Paul, add to the classroom? It's just awesome what Paul writes here. 
You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, let us all be urged by the word of God this morning, brothers, sisters, to do this more and more. You see, clearly the Thessalonians are a loving people. I mean, Paul's able to encourage them. You are loving the brothers all throughout Macedonia. That's, that's pretty amazing. And that is encouraging. But there's always a reason, right, that since we're in the letter of Paul, I'll just say it's, there's always a reason when Paul is writing, he's writing for, for a purpose, There's something going on there. There's something that needs to be addressed in the Thessalonians, and we bring that forward. That's for God's word. It's not just for the Thessalonians then. It's for believers today. It's for Trinity this morning. Thank you for loving people broadly and widely, and through the word of God, we're urged love more and more. And so there's there's both encouragement in the text, but there's also, he's addressing a problem. And the problem is, is the lack of love. And that's all of our problem. <laughs> that's all of our problem. Safe to say, we are not done with Love 101 yet. The problem that Paul puts before us is that even though they love, they clearly need to be urged to love more. And the solution to the problem is to consider, all right, if that's the problem, lack of love, Paul's solution is to consider God's love. It's amazing that when Jesus was asked to sum up all the law and all the prophets, so here's, all right, sum up the Old Testament, and you know, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every sin, we could say, every sin is birthed out of a failure either to love God or love your neighbor, or we could say both. Now I want us to remember the context. Last week, Alex preached, I just thought a, he did such a fantastic job handling that very difficult text. And the context, all right, so we're not just kind of, all right, now Paul's going to just drop into love. Like, consider the context. He's already told us, chapter 4, verse 1, this, this text is still the umbrella over our text. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so just this desire, right? Like, are we a people of believers who desire to please God? Answer is yes. Yes, you can talk. Right? We want to please the Lord with our lives. And so he drops into um, a section, verses 1 through 8, about sexual purity. And then he drops into a section about loving. And in both of those cases, he urges us purity more and more. Love others more and more. 
Well, we sin because we don't love God as we should. And when we don't love God as we should, we will also not love others as we should. And that's just kind of simple, right? Like, okay. It's simple to diagnose. It's not easy. It's profoundly difficult to live. And that's why Paul's exhorting them and exhorting us. And specifically, he is exhorting us. He's, he's exhorting believers. This is not an exhortation to the world, though it would benefit the world. It's towards us, the church. All that said, Paul is not delivering a moral message to love more. This is not you were saved by grace and now you remain saved by moralism. It's not what he's doing. We are saved by grace. Every day of our lives is grace. You are justified in Christ by grace. You are sanctified, last week's sermon, by grace. You will one day be glorified by grace. Moralistically, knowing that we are to love more will help you to love more for maybe five minutes. If you're better than I am, it maybe will take you five hours. You will love more. But if you seek to apply this sermon moralistically, then in five days, the shelf life will have died. It has expired. So please don't hear this message and please don't hear Paul's urging more and more moralistically. Now you might love your neighbor. That neighbor might be your spouse. It might be your children. It might be your friend. But here's the reality. All it takes, you're driving down the road with your spouse. All it takes is one bad driver to wreck your love of neighbor. All it takes, wow, Kim and I can have just a great day. 30,000 conversations. All it takes is my one comment to wreck the day. It's my gift. It's what I bring. (laughs) Easy. (laughs) She tapped you on the leg a little too hard there. (laughs) You'd leave a bruise. (laughs) It just takes a comment by the kids, right? Even when we do love, hear me, all right? Wife, you're, you're gonna cook a special meal for your husband. You're gonna do, husband, you're gonna do some special things around the house that she's been asking you to do. And you're gonna cook that or you're gonna do those things because you love. And that might be the genuine motive, but time out, pause, let's back up a little bit. Often, even that is motivated out of a self-love. A manipulation to get what you want. Maybe it's to get her to stop nagging to get the things done. I'm just going to go do this, and I'm going to call it love, and it is love. It's loving myself. How about, honey, how about you go and play golf? Because I want to love you. Because I am so sick and tired of you being around the house. 
It might look like love, and we might call it love, and it is self-love, but that's not what Paul's after in them or us. So the goal of the message is not for us to leave here this morning and go try harder. That moralism will only lead to further guilt, I am failing, or further pride. Look at what a great job I'm doing. That's the problem, or what some would call the fallen condition focus of the text. There's always a fallen condition focus. And the solution, what I'm trying to say to you, isn't moralism. The solution isn't found in what Alex was talking about last week. It's not found in the imperative command. It's found in the indicative grace of the text. Who are you in Christ? You are a Christian, which means you are a person who has been and is being and will be loved by God. You say, but wait, I listened to when Rick read the text. I didn't hear it reference God, God's love of us. And you are correct. What you heard was that God himself has been your teacher of love, And as we unpack this, I believe you'll come to see that in and of itself, that that in and of itself, that God is your teacher of love is the love of God in our lives. What will light you up to love others more and more? A moralistic sermon or the love of Christ? How has God taught them? How is God teaching us? He didn't teach the Thessalonians. He didn't bring them to a classroom. There was no equipped class for this. It wasn't a teaching lesson. They and we have been taught love by God by being loved by God. That's how he teaches us. To be taught love is to be loved by God. When you are being loved by God, I want us to think, I am in the classroom of God's love, which is teaching me how to then love others. So if you want to love others more and more, as we're being urged here, don't approach this text moralistically. I got to go out and do and do and do. Rather, meditate more on the love of God in your life. Angry at your child who did it again after the umpteenth time of being told. Consider the love of God who has loved you even when you did it again the umpteenth time. Love breeds love. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So I think this would be easy to brush over too quickly. I think Paul is making a profound point here. Our love for others is rooted in his love for us. We have been taught by God. You and I, we have a good teacher. So let's take a few moments and we're going to rehearse the love of God in just two ways. 
It's all we got time for. In two areas in our lives, before we get to the more and more that we're being urged to, we need to consider God's love towards us. First of all, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The classroom of God's teaching was the history class. It was the entire history of Israel. That's, that's the curriculum. Psalm alone, the book of Psalms, that book alone recounts the steadfast love of the Lord. What it translate or what's translated into our language, the steadfast love of the Lord is the word hesed. In Psalms alone, 123 times. 123 times, the Psalms is calling them and calling us to recount. God is steadfast. He is faithful. His love never ceases. And then we're going to do that 122 more times. Just in the book of Psalms. Welcome to the classroom of God. The point of all the recounting, whether that be recounting of Israel's history um, with Egypt and God raises up a deliverer and it's Moses and God delivers his people from slavery or whether we go to Genesis 12 and it's his covenant that he's being he's making with Abraham or whether we go to his conquering of Canaan through Joshua or whether it's his raising up and now it's King David all of those episodes and so many more are pointing to the love of God. He is faithful. He is steadfast. His love never ceases. And as it points, it points to Jesus Christ. Uh, all these individuals that I just named, they are in some ways failing to the people, to Israel. They all have their sins. It's pointing. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And Jesus came. Because the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. And all of that love being poured out throughout, we read the Bible, but you can read your own story. The love of God poured out in your life is a recounting. And the, what Paul's after here is that teaching of love is to call us. It's where he urges us to love more and more. The point is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases not just in Psalm, not just in the Bible, but in your individual lives, his love never ceases. And so we come to Exodus 34. We could literally turn to hundreds of scriptures to rehearse the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, but we'll just go to one because that's all we have time for. Exodus 34, six and seven. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is your life, church. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Now, what's the context for that, for Exodus 34, don't say Exodus 33. <laughs> <laughs> 
The context is is the people of Israel are coming to Aaron and they're whining and complaining. Uh, Moses, is, he's gone. He went up the mountain, he's gone. We need, we need a God. And so Aaron tells the people, take off your jewelry and they fashion a calf and he says, worship, this is the God who delivered you from Egypt. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is your God. When Israel bails on God, turns to it, Stupid idol made of hands. Turn the page. And God is revealing himself in his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's your teacher. So Paul could have said, so you know what, guys? When people fail you, love them because that's what you've been taught. Exodus 34. When people turn your back, their back on you, love them because that's, that's the classroom. God is the teacher. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. It's already been read this morning as our call to worship. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Praise him. What has the classroom of the love of God taught you? It has taught me to recount his love. It has taught me that his love is beyond measure, what we just read. It has taught me to trust his love. It has taught me that his love never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Secondly, his redeeming love. Consider that portion of the class. Let's take a quick tour. We first of all, will head over to Bethlehem and we peer in the manger and there's a baby in the manger and we consider, oh, that's the son of God. The son of God has come and put on human flesh. Why is God in flesh here as a baby in the manger? Well, because we are sinners and because God is love. Come with me to where Christ was crucified and we go to the hill called Calvary. Why is the Son of God bloodied and beaten and spit upon? Why is that crown of thorns pressed into his brow? Why is that bloody scene there? It is none other than the redeeming love of God. This is your classroom, church, Bethlehem and Calvary. This is where we are taught that love is given not based on our merit, 
but based on the complete mercy of our Savior. Come with me to the tomb where the Lord has been buried and peer in together along with those ladies on that third day and hear the angel say, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is love. The father received the sacrifice of the son. When Christ rose... It's a testimony. It's a witness to the love of God. It is a statement. God the Father received the sacrifice of the Son. It's effective. The plan of God, it it worked. It's here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He took our place on the cross. He died, he rose. Your sacrifice, the the son's sacrifice for our sins was accepted. You and I, we sang about it. We're forgiven. Oh, it's so easy to sing, isn't it? It's so easy to sing and, and think about lunch. It is. We can sing and think about lunch. Forgiven. You're forgiven. This is your classroom. And we could spend the entire sermon. We could spend the entire day. But we'll do better than that. We'll spend all of eternity considering the love of God poured out for us. Now, I know that the love of God is abused in church circles today. God loves you has been stated to the neglect. God is love. Absolutely, John told us that. But it's stated to the neglect of other attributes of God. And that's, that's a concern to us. We don't want to neglect any attribute of God at Trinity, even the difficult ones. When the text says the wrath of God, we want to preach the wrath of God. So you might be a guest Maybe that scared you away. Maybe you're encouraged. I don't know. But we want to be faithful to the text. Now, this morning, it doesn't talk about the wrath of God, so I'm not either. We're going to preach the text. But I just do want you to know that if you're here next week, we might be talking about that. (laughs) Because in all of God's attributes, we find grace and mercy. And even in in the wrath of God, we find that to be a holy, loving wrath. Tempting. Stay with the sermon. Stay with the text. We just don't want to neglect any of that. But God's redeeming love in summary is this. Well, Christ said it on the cross. It's finished. It's finished. It is finished, meaning your redemption complete, your salvation accomplished, your sins forgiven. He has removed every barrier that stands before you and God because he takes your sin, my sin on his shoulders and he gives us his righteousness. So now you stand complete and we go, huh, what? Were you in the car with me yesterday 
And the answer is, yes, he was. And you stand forgiven in Christ. Welcome to the classroom of God. Love 101. What a merciful God. All punishment for sin, Christ carried on his shoulders. Not one bit of punishment remains for the believer in Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, hear me, I'm intentionally saying, for the believer in Jesus Christ. Love said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ on the cross. Because Christ on the cross was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would not be forsaken. He bore my guilt. He took my shame. Every last drop of the Father's wrath was poured out on the Son so that you and I might be set free from sin and death and be brought into a restored right relationship with God. And I'm saying to you, this is love. And that is all packed into what Paul is saying here. You've been taught by God. I have no reason to write any letter about love because you have been in the classroom of God. Taught by him. Remember how the text ended last week? Alex preaching. Let's go back to verse eight. Whoever discards, disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's the context. That's love. <laughs> That's love. Paul's point, I urge you to love more and more, more and more. His point, come on into the classroom. Love 101, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is your teacher. So, you want to please God? Walk in purity. More and more. And love others more and more. Point number two, love has three commands. I promise you, I will not be preaching 30 minutes on point number two. We'll move pretty quick here. He gives three commands at this point. Verse number 11, and aspire to live quietly. That's one. Number two, and to mind your own affairs. And three, Work with your hands as we instructed you. First of all, aspire to live a quiet life. The, the wording here is an oxymoron. It could be translated to strive to live quiet. Strive to live quiet. Or the way we would put it in 2021, strive to chill. It's exactly what it's saying. Strive to chill. That's how we would put it, and that's why it's an oxymoron. So strive to chill. <laughs> I like that. In what sort of way is Paul calling us to strive to chill or strive to live quiet? And how is that loving others? It's a call to not overstep. It's a call to not be a burden to others. We are to strive to not, to not intrude. So that when there's a need, it's a need that needs to be met. Others can step in and love 
It's also a call not to draw attention to ourselves. It's, it's, I think it's Paul in Acts 17 where, uh, I guess you could say, Paul stirred up a riot. That's where we started in Thessalonians, the first week, Acts 17. You can go back and read about it, but because of Paul's ministry, a riot is kicked up, and poor Justin, not Justin, but Justin in the text. Is it Justin or was it Jason? It was Jason. Sorry. Jason. <laughs> it was Jason. And poor Jason. I mean, he's left with the bag, right? Like, and Paul, he leaves quietly. I think this is that strive to live quiet. Some might say, Paul, you're being a wimp. I don't think Paul was a wimp. Ah. And so there must be some wisdom here. You know, some would say, Paul, you need to stand up. Sometimes we do need to stand up. There's also a time to slip away quietly. And that was love. For Paul to do that, I think that was love, especially for Jason and probably the brothers and sisters who remained behind as well. There's a time when boldness is needed and it's the most loving thing that we can do is to be bold. And there's times when we need to strive for a quiet life and that's the most loving thing we can do. Let me ask you, are you able to back away from a hot issue? Or does that have to, do I have to have the last word? I can't let that comment go untested, uncontested. Sometimes a quiet life loves by not commenting. I just encourage us, let's not die on the wrong hills. I want to die on the hill of the gospel. Secondly, he commands them to mind your own affairs. It's pretty similar. NIV translates it, mind your own business. (laughs) It's to be about your affairs, be about your business. And apparently some people were sticking their nose in other people's business and not being responsible with their own business. And so that's an issue in Thessalonian believers. It's going to come up more in 2 Thessalonians, but just turn over one few verses, chapter 5, verse 14, admonish the idol. And so there's an issue, and again, we'll see it more in 2 Thessalonians, but idleness is an issue in this church. And idleness, a lack of working, is not minding your own affairs, and thus it puts a demand. You're not minding, you're not minding to your own business. It puts a demand on the community. And it's not love, is what's being spoken here. Love by not sticking yourself in everyone's business. Got to know everyone's stuff. Got to be the answer for everyone. All the while, your home is in neglect. Paul's saying, let's not do that. Let's not be that. And then he says, third one, work with your hands. And so not surprising, the third command is fitting with the previous two. Now here's the context, and you'll hear this next week. It's going to be preached. The context where Paul is going is going to begin to speak of the coming of the Lord. Christ is returning. And that's important for us to know that that's the context, because what's going on here? There seems to be a lack of love and that some are no longer working and they're idle because the Lord is coming. Ha! And Paul's saying, pick up the plow, get to work, and Christ is coming. 
I think it's Martin Luther. I'm probably butchering this a little bit, but I think he said, if I knew Christ was returning tomorrow, I'll plant a tree today. That's that idea right here in the text. Christ is coming. That's what you're going to hear preached next week and the next couple weeks. Christ is coming. It's going to be a theme in 2 Thessalonians. Christ is coming. What do we do? Don't be idle. Work today. Is Christ returning? Yes, absolutely. When? We don't know. What do we do? Plant a tree, Martin Luther would say. Plant a tree. Work with your hands. Because to not do so is to be a burden on the community, and thus you're not loving others, your brothers and sisters. We also need to know the context, the local context among the Greeks was one in which the Greeks disdained work. Work was for the lowly. Work was for the servants. Yeah. We're not going to work. Well, some of those Greeks have become believers and they're in this church. They're part of the community. And so Paul's addressing that. And in, in a sense, he's saying, look, you, you, you are saved. You're a believer. You're not of this world. You're a part of the kingdom of God. Christ is returning. You're a believer. Put your head down. Get your hand on the plow and let's get busy and work. Well, he gives us two reasons why. And if the worship team would join me. Verse number 12, he says, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So two reasons. You live properly before outsiders, two, dependent on no one. Walk before the world, walk before the outsider, live among the world loving as you go. When the world sees you as a believer, they should be seeing a person who loves them. And some of the specific ways that they see our love is that we're hard workers, believers in Christ. We ought to be hard workers. The world should see our work ethic and see, wow, they're hard workers for the glory of God or as unto the Lord, Colossians 3. The world is to bump into believers who, who are striving to live a quiet life and they're living responsibly with their business, their own affairs. Now we typically emphasize at Trinity, the gospel must be shared and I want you to hear, that's true. Open our mouths, we need to speak more. Speak more gospel. We're called to speak. But let's not forget we are a witness to this world, and that's what Paul's pointing to. The life we live is a testimony. Your marriage, your family, your work, your parenting, it's a display of the love of God, and I believe it's attractive, and it may become the, the impetus that provides the opportunity for you and I to now speak the gospel. The gospel lived, the gospel displayed can become the opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed. And then he says, so that you are dependent on no one. The text is saying that being dependent on no one is a way to love others. Ultimately, we are to be dependent on the Lord. I hope you are understanding that we're not preaching this text 
seeking to drive us into some new moralism outside of Christ. That's why we spent the bulk share of our time rehearsing his love towards us. We ought to see how lacking in love we are and allow that to drive us to Christ and his love dependent on Christ. His love, not our love, is to be the driver. My lack of love is to be the leverage to love because Christ has so loved me. Glory in that love. Christ, church, he loves you. So love others. I urge you more and more. Let's stand together and let's respond in singing.